Welcome to Book Club. I'm really into fun facts. Julie mm-hmm. has an endless array of pop culture knowledge. Mm-hmm. Overall, I would say I liked it. Something about the way she writes is like really concrete and immediate. Who is this man? Why is he in this costume? <laughs> you know, like, why did he drop a squid? Like, you like teased some juicy deets about the creation of this book. This is, again, what Victoria finds interesting, not, like, what is actually most important about these uh-huh. people. What stories are we going to tell ourselves about this year? Welcome to the party. Welcome, guys. Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. We are two roommates and friends since high school who read a book and talk about it each episode. This is a podcast where we explore new perspectives and use books as a tool for personal and community growth. This week, we are reading Fall Down Seven Times, Get Up Eight by Naoki Higashida. And we will be talking about the entire book. So if you're a person who cares about spoilers, you have been warned. And if you don't care about spoilers, you are totally welcome here. Yes. As we dig into this book. So uh, whether you've read, you plan to read, or you haven't read yet, welcome to the party. Welcome! Okay, so I know Fall Down Seven Times, Get Up Eight, the, the phrase, yes. is a Japanese proverb. Yes. However, I spent way too much time <laughs> debating with myself and then Varun, because he was in the room, of if you fell down seven times, wouldn't you only get up seven times? <laughs> what is the eighth time? And I finally landed on, they count when you get up in the morning. That's uh... all I can think of, is you get up because you got out of bed. <laughs> right. And then you fell down once. And then you got it again. So that's right. one fall, two get-ups. So that's how we get to eight. Yeah, I think the idea is, like, you had to get up, like, not even necessarily a literal falling down or a literal waking up, but, like, you had to get up to start up. And mm-hmm. then... You started from down. Yes, and you started still from up. <laughs> as a baby on the ground. <laughs> and then you had to get up. True. And walk upright. You had to evolve as a human being, and then, you know, then you fall down. Yeah. Like, I I know, I think the basic idea is that, like, get up more than you fall down. Right. The sentiment I totally agree with. Yeah. I completely understand. (laughs) And that's why I'm like, I know it's silly, because Proverbs usually, like, they're just, you know what they're trying to say. Right, they're not literal. They're not literal, but yeah. I (laughs) was reading the book, and I stopped for a second and looked at the cover. I'm like, wouldn't... If you fall down seven, get up seven. Like, right. get up every time you fall down. Yeah. But besides my hang up on the title. Yes. The book as a whole, um, thoroughly enjoyed. This Good. is our second Higashida book that we've read. My expectations were pretty steady and my expectations were met because we've read it, be- read his work before. I knew this was, you know, writing that he did and older than when he wrote The Reason I Jump. But yeah. Insightful. Learned a lot. Wrote some quotes that I'm ready to, like, paint on my wall because I, like, need <laughs> to be reminded of this wisdom that he shared. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also, like, love reading from, like, a peer. Like, he's pretty much the same age as us. He's yeah. a couple years older. Yeah. And so that's enjoyable, too. Uh, it also makes me feel old because I'm like, look at this other adult who is the same age as me. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I am adult. Yeah. Yeah. This book, I read it slower than I expected because it's not long. And it's, you know, a fairly easy read, but I I think I was, like, chewing on it for a while. Mm-hmm. It took me a couple weeks, and I would just read little bits at a time. 
I loved it. I liked it even more than the first one. Because this one, I felt like, spoke more directly to my experience. It got more political. It got more socio-political. You know, like, it, mm-hmm. it, he has had some experience of the wider world now. He's an adult. And he is sharing some of his observations about humanity from his uh, personal experience and also the kind of unique experiences that he's been able to have that other nonverbal autistic people wouldn't normally have. And so I really loved everything he had to say, even if I didn't completely agree with all of it or didn't, you know, it didn't necessarily resonate. And it just, honestly... (laughs) The feeling it left me with was I was just so happy for him. I was like, look at him go! Look at him being a successful author that people, like, want to interview and, like, treat with respect. And, like, the independence that he's been able to find. And, like, he's, like, a role model for people. And he, I just... Some of the things that he struggled with in his first book, he's, like, kind of figured out over time. Mm -hmm. You know, it just took some time for him to kind of learn his own way of doing things. And you even see some growth for him over the course of this book, where he, like, feels bad that he can never communicate to his mother how much she means to him. And then at the end of the book, he's able to, like, buy her a flower for Mother's Day, totally on his own. Yeah, it just made me so excited for him. And it made me want that kind of growth for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and his voice as a writer has really matured, too. Like, he just sounds way more confident and his style is improved. Like, I realize this is, you know, a translation. Like, I'm not reading the exact words that he wrote in Japanese. But, you know, he's definitely matured in his craft as well, mm-hmm. which is very exciting yeah. to see. <laughs> Yeah, I think we previously discussed the reason I jump on this podcast. If you want to go back and listen, episode 46, we had to guest Hai Young Ro on that episode as well. And we noted that, like, it was a really insightful book, but at the same time, it's also a book written by a 13-year-old. Yeah. And you still get that. Like, it's really well written. As a 13-year-old, I did not go and write and publish a <laughs> best-selling book. Um, by no means trying to demean that. But yeah. the progression that you would see of a, you know, uh, established writer who's 13 10 years later you know is is really evident you can see like oh yes this is someone who has spent even more time perfecting their craft and mm-hmm. if you want to check out that episode for more background on Higashida we talk more specifically but as mentioned he's a Japanese author who's nonverbal and autistic he communicates by using an alphabet grid primarily so it's basically a qwerty keyboard looking thing um and he points and has is able to communicate that way and spell things out. And then also he's able to type. And so I think the one distinction between these two books is he also wrote this typing, um, which he talks about that experience in the book. And I found really fascinating as well. And, and then again, speaks to like, yeah, the work that he's doing to get his thoughts on the page and Mm -hmm. like how his brain sometimes works against him and like writing one sentence for many of us writers, we're like, just trying to get the right sentence is so hard. And then doing that on top of, you know, having, some troubles communicating applaudable. And as I mentioned, he's similar to our age. He was born in 92. I guess the way I said that, it assumes you know that we are both 25. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was 23 when this book was published in 2015. 
this edition is kind of like a collection of his blog posts, um, some poetry, and then for the U.S. printing specifically, he wrote the short fiction that's in there as well. There's also an interview that he did with a Japanese magazine. And big item to note, in the introduction, they they comment that uh, Higashida is the second most widely translated Japanese author living after Haruki Murakami, which is just insane. Oh my god! <laughs> like, Murakami has been translated in, like, I don't Every, every language. language and so like to be second after him that's 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 quite the feat oh, i'm yeah. so proud <laughs> go naoki oh and the book is uh like we mentioned it's in translation so the translators are ka yoshida and david mitchell mitchell and yoshida both helped or they together translated his first book the reason i jump yoshida and mitchell have a son themselves who is autistic and when they were trying to get more resources Yoshida found Higashida's writing online and she started translating it to share with other English-speaking parents because she thought it was so great and like helpful Mm -hmm. in that insight that her and her husband really craved Um, and David Mitchell being an author was able to kind of probably make the connections happen in many ways to Mm -hmm. to get these books translated into English and published so widely. Yeah, I feel like it's worth noting, like, this is only the second book published in English. Right. So he he had, like, a blog, a Japanese blog. I don't know if he still posts to it, but I was able to find it once. (laughs) He was posting, like, every day, weekly, just these little snippets. And they are regularly compiled into books. So he had a book published, like, every year after The Reason I Jump. This is just the second one that's been translated into English. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's worth noting. He's like a prolific writer. <laughs> this is just, you know, what we have been blessed with. In terms of the premise of this book, I feel like we already kind of covered it. It's a collection of his writings as an adult, poems, short stories, and interviews, just kind of reflecting on his childhood and his teen years, definitely from the perspective of an adult, like someone who has continue to grow and have his own experiences and his own freedoms now that he's no longer in them reflecting on like his education and his connections and how he feels about the different options that were presented to him as an autistic person and you know what things should be changed about the world so yeah mm-hmm. um i would say if you're not Like, the reason I jump, I think, is very, very, very helpful for parents and anyone who knows an autistic person or is going to be working with kids and might have an autistic student or, like, you know, it's a good empathy tool. But I think in terms of, like, use, it's probably best for those kind, those categories of people. But I think this book has a much broader appeal Mm -hmm. in terms of who could find it useful because it's applicable to the broader disability community and it helps you understand autistic people, specifically nonverbal autistic people, but it also kind of makes you think about the the sociopolitical sort of organization of our society and where disabled people fit into it. So if you're going to pick one, (laughs) <laughs> maybe pick this one depending on your situation so yeah that's uh that's about it
This podcast is made possible by our fantastic book club members. You can support the show by becoming a member on buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv. Starting at $3 per month, book club members can connect with fellow listeners, help us select books for future episodes, unlock exclusive posts and messages, get early and discounted access to future events and more. And if you want to take your support to the next level, you can join the TISM tier, which starts at $5 per month. The TISM tier is all about autism. Are you an autistic person looking for community? A possible neurodiverse person looking for resources? Or an ally hoping to learn more from an actual autistic person? Members of this tier get free access to Julia's autism-related articles on Medium. The best part of any book club, besides the books, is the community. So join us in our growing community of book nerds by becoming a member of the book club today. Follow the link in our show notes or go to buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv to join the party. That's buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv. We'll see you there. So generally, the theme I pull out from this book is treat autistic people as people first. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it seems like a, well, duh, but also like so important. And he goes through different facets of life and ways that you might be interacting as a neuro neurotypical person with people who are autistic and then and then vice versa kind of like giving a mirror to people who are also autistic and be like I understand like you're not the only one who who feels this way yeah I think kind of like one of the first areas that he speaks specifically to how how and why (laughs) to treat autistic people as people first is when it comes to their care and um, like day-to-day support Mm. One of the big themes that I got was something that I wrote over and over and over in the notes when I was reading Neurotribes was just, it's not about you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And one of the things he says, he has a section called We're Listening that talks about how a lot of times people talk about autistic people like they're not in the room or assume that they don't hear things as if like treated like they don't exist and one of the things he says is i can't avoid concluding that too often too many people interpret those of us with autism in ways and for reasons that serve their interests first and ours a distant second and another thing he says is it would be useful also if they being people who want to help autistic people double-checked that the assistance they're offering is of real relevance to the person with special needs and not about gratifying their own desire to care. Mm -hmm. Easier said than done, I know. So those were two points where I was like, ooh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Where the theme I see in a lot of, like, disability advocacy spaces where it's, like, the different ways that either able-bodied or neurotypical people interpret or sort of try to deal with disabled people's existence it it makes people uncomfortable and they don't quite know how to fit it into their framework of reality and so a lot of times whatever people do is just to ease their own discomfort rather than to actually be 
of support or assistance to a person who might need it. So they'll do sort of symbolic gestures that look really emotional. They call it inspiration porn. (laughs) Where, like, it's a person who's just the right amount of disabled, who, you know, is accomplishing something and they really had to struggle and... This one person sort of steps in and provides a small support, and now they can think about that one amazing thing they did the rest of their lives. But it's it's very dehumanizing to the person who actually had to struggle. Or, like, another thing people do is, like, to treat particularly autistic people who talk through some kind of alternative communication device, um, or... Like, people who use sign language, like the deaf community as well, where it's like, if people don't communicate quite the same way as you, then you just, you know, you deal with your own discomfort by just ignoring it and pretending that those people aren't there, treating them like children or animals or (laughs) just whatever you need to do to not think about, like, the implications of your actions on them as a person. Or, you know, something that I've seen a lot of people with, like, physical limitations talk about is, like, how uncomfortable, how freaked out people get around them because they don't know what to do. Like, they really want to be helpful, but they don't know what to do, and they're scared to ask, and so they do something that's actually really get, that's really disruptive or gets in the way or is just like, really awkward, and they expect to be thanked for it, Mm. when, like, they could have just asked the person, what do you need, you know? And maybe the person doesn't need anything at that moment. People don't want to acknowledge the humanity of the disabled community, but they want to be thanked for the small things that they do that can sometimes be quite harmful. I don't know if any of that made sense. It was like a complicated jumble of like 12 different ideas, but it all boils down to like people tend to make interactions with disabled people about themselves to sort of ease their own discomfort or guilt or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that often ends up harming the people that they're claiming to help. Because it ignores their real needs and it ignores their, the complexity of their humanity. One of my favorite quotes from the book is, praise is not a fast track to self-acceptance. Mm. And it just like hit me in the gut because I'm definitely one of those people that's like, please praise me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was like a meme or as, um, as something I read for Enneagram type 3, which is what I identify as. And um, it's like, please praise me. <laughs> Um, is like the heart of my being, and so it felt a little, um, a little personal yeah. to be reminded that like just because someone is praising you is not a fast way for you to actually be self accepting. Yeah. Um, and same goes for um, Naoki. He's like, I don't just need you to praise me. That's not gonna help me accept myself. Yeah. And he talks a lot about like how long it took him to be okay with who he is. Yeah. And, and to to find that place of self acceptance. And those assumptions of, like, if we just praise them a lot, like, good job, you did it. Like, that's not really always what people need. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of infantilizing, Mm -hmm. right? Because he's like, don't just praise us for small tasks over and over and over. Like, that sort of sends the communication that, like, 
very little was expected of you. Mm. You know what I mean? We didn't really think that you could do this one small thing that you've been doing for a long time. So we're really excited, you know? And the other thing is that, like, it that doesn't... That system of just constantly praising actually doesn't work for anyone. Yeah. Um, I think she talks about... Carol Dweck talks about it in the Mindsets book, where, like, the kids who get the best grades or who always win or who are given an emphasis on you always have to be right, you always have to do an amazing job, are actually <laughs> left in this constant state of fear of taking risks and they won't push themselves because they're just like, well, I have to succeed. Mm-hmm. I have to get... I have to accomplish this thing that's expected of me. You know, instead, her argument is like you should put the emphasis on growth and like looking at, Hey, like you messed that thing up this time, but like, it's really incredible that you tried and look how far you come from where you started. You can continue to grow if you continue pushing yourself, you know, and sort of, um, being kind of excited about failure because it presents a new opportunity and those kind of people become the most resilient. In this current state of one plus year now of the pandemic I feel like resilience has been almost like a buzzword yeah um and building resilience I had the opportunity to help produce a webinar specifically around building resilience in children um and we had the Dr. Bruce Perry who's a world-renowned trauma expert come and speak specifically to how children build resilience and how people build resilience and it's through small manageable doses of stress Mm. and so it's like leveling up in a video game you know Mm. like when you're on the first level it feels really hard but then you learn the controls you learn what you do and it's no longer hard and if you stay at level one you get bored Mm -hmm. you don't you get apathetic you don't care um but then you level up and it's a little more challenging but if you go from level one to like level 99 there's no way you're gonna beat the game because you haven't built up those skills Mm. as you went um and i think the overabundance of praise that for small tasks that Naoki's referencing is kind of that like that was my level five I'm I'm on level 15 now so stop praising me for doing the basic skill that I learned a while ago Mm -hmm. and I think uh neurotypical people and specifically caregivers teachers etc we might have you know fixed in our brain oh, people by this certain age can do this certain thing, like these Mm. developmental, like, milestones. And so when someone hits those milestones at different times, you, like, don't know when to, (laughs) Mm. like, reach them at their developmental stage. And again, I feel like we come back again. Like, if we focus on what neurodiverse people need, we are also helping everyone else. You know, if we stop putting people in boxes of, like, well, if you didn't hit this milestone by this time, you're behind. And therefore, we're going to, like, treat you differently in negative ways or kind of like Mm -hmm. let you stay stuck (laughs) or only expect you to be at that level and not expect growth. Um, Growth happens at different paces and in different stages. Like if you don't get on the train by this certain point, then you just have missed the train for the rest of your life. Right. It's like the train comes every hour. You can catch it (laughs) later. (laughs) You'll still get there. It might just take you a little longer. Yeah. And that's totally okay. Maybe you didn't catch the express train, but there's a train that stops at every stop along the way. And maybe you just take your time and read a book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) At the end of this, you've read more than everyone. And that's what we care about on this podcast. Exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's the most complicated metaphor. I really appreciated how much he talked about his family in this book. Mm. Especially his mother, but like even his relationship with his sister was so cute. And his father, I was like, is his father autistic? I Just because they just like, his dad doesn't really talk much and he just has like his certain interests that he likes and the way that they interact with each other is they just sit next to each other in silence and I was like this is so adorable (laughs) um but like the way he relates to his mother and sister is they have a very like they don't seem to be too affected personally or they don't take it personally when Naoki does or doesn't achieve certain milestones. You know what I mean? They're just like, okay, you know, that's not happening today. That's not happening today. Or like, they just, they seem to be pretty go with the flow and they don't get really over anxious or freaked out when he does. You know what I mean? They just like, stay calm and they just wait for him to figure something out and they present some options and He talks about different examples of when they were trying to figure out how to explain something to him. And when they finally figured it out, they were like, oh, yeah. (laughs) And it like clicked for him for the first time. It was about like, oh, it's about like how to eat like hard candy. Mm, And she like couldn't figure out how to explain that you like suck on it. And finally she figured it out and like showed it to him. And then he was like, oh, (laughs) and they had this fun little moment where they were like, yay, we did it. And his sister just seems to be so chill, too, where she's just like happy with him being as he is. And they still interact with him and treat him like a person. Mm -hmm. And he talks about like how much he loves just being around his family when they're like all talking or just living their daily lives in their house and he just feels very interconnected. He feels like he's part of something. Yeah, I just really, really appreciated him presenting, like, a happy and healthy way that autistic people can be included in, you know, different groups and spaces and, you know, parenting examples. (laughs) And it reminded me a bit of Greta Thunberg's parents, um, as you see them in I Am Greta. Especially her dad. Her dad is much more just kind of go with the flow for the most part. Unless she doesn't eat and then he gets real snippy. (laughs) He's like, you are going to eat this banana if it is the last thing I do. (laughs) But they're just like, all right, you want to go skip school on Fridays and go protest the government? Great. More power to you. Here, I'll help you print the pamphlets. Like, oh, you want to speak at the UN? Great. I'll drag you. Like, you want to go vegan? All right, sure. The whole family's vegan now. Like, they just... You can see that it does affect them emotionally, but they're much more just like, okay, this is who you are, and we're going to go with it. Mm -hmm. Rather than, like, being like, no, this doesn't fit the archetype of this certain type of child that I was told I needed to have, and so I'm going to try and fix you and put you back into this box. And that's where you get the most confident and expressive and powerful autistic people is when you have parents who are like yeah you're fine like that Mm -hmm. let's uh work with what we've got yeah 
It sounds like they're emotionally regulated. Like they know yes. how to process their own emotions in a way that doesn't just dump on the other child or person or relative. What specifically stood out to me with Naoki's family is that he knows that they don't act differently whether or not he's in the room. Like yes. he feels so much a part of it as an ecosystem, as a family unit, that he's like, I have my place here and I'm not this other thing. You know, they don't turn into like, everyone focus on Naoki, he's in the room. He needs to like, are you okay? And like, mm. oh, you know, like he can just be and they can just be and like, Again, this is great for Naoki. It's also great for all people. Yeah. <laughs> if you can be in a space where you feel very comfortable to be yourself and, and all the people in your living unit, your bubble, whoever you are with, feel comfortable to come and go and know that mm -hmm. people don't have to change who they are when you're around. Yeah, they don't coddle him and they don't catastrophize his... Like, if he struggles with something, they don't make it seem like it's the end of the world or that there's something wrong with him. They're just like, okay, this is something we need to figure out. Like you said, like they just continue to be themselves. So a whole section of this book is about Naoki's school experience. First, starting out in a traditional school mixed in with other neurotypical students and, and then later moving to a, sp a specifically special needs school. And he doesn't really say like, this is the way, there's one good way, there's one bad way. Um, when he was with the special needs school, he acknowledged how beneficial it was to have teachers and students and staff who understood and were supportive and could be attuned to his unique needs mm -hmm. and that he could see himself in other students and be like, I'm not the only one, mm -hmm. um, seeing other people like himself. But he also notes where it falls short, and that's specifically bridging the gap between neurodiverse and neurotypical students. Um, they don't have that window to each other's world. And so for neurotypical students... We're just left not knowing and not understanding mm -hmm. and not being aware that there's other ways that people think. And for the neurodiverse students, it's not having sometimes that greater understanding of what's going on in society. And he does kind of speak, kind of like we were already talking about, being like overly coddled and mm -hmm. like not given. There's no expectation that he would want to do anything else than go on this kind of prescriptive path yeah. that was primarily institutionalized. So stay in the school and then go on to the like high school equivalent, um, go into this job for, you know, specifically disabled people. Mm -hmm. um, and you just have this path carved out. And yeah, I was really intrigued. I, I love talking about school and education and, yeah. and how, how it works and doesn't work for people. Yeah. When he talks about like the importance of, having autistic people integrated into society at large and how that is ultimately beneficial for everyone and provides more humanity for autistic people to experience. And so he says, I wish more people understood that there are individuals who lead mostly invisible lives as they cope with disabilities and challenges and that to observe them doing so is to reflect upon one's own life. This is not to say that people with autism want you to think, oh, those poor things, or I'm so sorry for them. All we want is to live alongside everyone else. People getting on with life and working hard together is a wonderful thing. Yes, the neurotypical majority might be more productive than us, but we too want to embrace life and be of use to others as best we can. Must people born with special needs lead unseen lives as if we're hiding ourselves away? Unfortunately, we are too often kept apart from society at large against our will. 
This denies us the chance of a meaningful life. And he says then, there are many ways of living, and this goes for people with special needs as well. We grow and bloom best in company. There must be so many of us with dreams that we yearn to see come true someday. May your futures and our futures come together. So, like, I mean, that's talking about education and beyond education. But he really emphasizes how the education system really is where, a, for all children, that's where they're, the ideas of what they're capable of are communicated to them. And, you know, you talk to a lot of students who were put in sort of underfunded special education classes, maybe just because they didn't speak the language or because they didn't have any support for an undiagnosed learning disability or whatever, or like, and that communicates to a person, you are only capable of this much and you will never live beyond that. The type of education you get and the expectations that your teachers have for you on what you'll achieve and who are the other people around you who you see in your classroom says, it says a lot to a child. <laughs> and it, mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, kind of dictates how you live the rest of your life. So I really liked his discussion of there should be space where, you know, autistic people can like just be with other autistic people and they can share resources and they can be like, oh, thank God I'm not alone. Or like, mm -hmm. what do you do when you feel this kind of thing? Or like, what's the best brand of shirts? You know, <laughs> or like, I'm really having trouble with this fabric. Like, does anyone have any suggestions? And, you know, what type of headphones do you wear when you go out in public? Like that kind of stuff. You know, you need that. But then you also need to feel like a real person and not someone like trapped in a box yeah. that no one wants to look at. Yeah, whenever we get talking about school, I immediately reflect on my own experience. And this is something that I did not realize until Julie and I were talking about. And I think we had another friend who is, went through the full public school education system. And I was like, oh, no, my classes are really mixed. Like we had... Like, there's one student in particular that I had, I, who was in my class for m most of m elementary school, who I believe is autistic. Um, mm -hmm. Just, like, looking back on, like, the assistance that he required and how he acted. But, like, it wasn't, like, a big deal. It was just, like, him as well as a few other students were pulled out to work one-on-one -on -one when we were all working on other things. And then they came back and joined us in class. And, like, we would break out into, like, the whole grade, even in, like, the third grade, you would, like, move classrooms to go to a... A math class and so then they were like kind of there was three different math classes so kind of wherever students were at they would be able to go into one but it wasn't like oh that's the smart math class and that's the dumb math class it was just like oh th these students are here and those students are there and and I, I don't know all the experiences of my peers maybe there were some kids who did feel like oh I'm in the the dumb one or yeah. like I'm farther behind or because you were in the smart one <sighs> <laughs> but I <laughs> smart privilege. I know smart privilege over here. Um, all this to say is that like it felt very integrated. Like there wasn't yeah. like a different class for this like those special needs kids mm. that we never saw. We just knew that like oh some of the students go and work with I don't remember the teacher's name one on one from time to time and they're still part of our class and we had recess and we had lunch and like gym and art class and like all those other classes like fully like integrated as a as a class and like 
modifications for students. Like I had a friend who was in a lot of the advanced classes with me, but he had difficulties handwriting. Mm. And so he typed all of his work and he had his own keyboard and it was accepted and normal. And like, that's what he does when he turns in his assignments. And it wasn't until I was older and talking with other friends that I was like, wait, that wasn't normal for you? That Mm. your school like had accommodations and was able to support that. But it's also the privilege of I was at a charter school. And while it was like public and free, it was still like an opt-in. You had to get a spot. Like my mom (laughs) showed up like every day for a month to make sure my brother got a spot when we moved to that town. Because I, there was enough room in the second grade. And so I got a spot and my mom was like, my kids are not, I cannot drive (laughs) three kids to three different schools. Like two of them at least need to be in the same school. And my mom's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I just annoyed the heck out of them because every class had like 28 students. His had 29. Oh my God. (laughs) And that's again, like the privilege of a mom who has the time to do it. And I'm sure, you know, white privilege and middle-class privilege on top of that too. So the issue is that that is not readily available to, Mm -hmm. to so many students. And, um, but it also made me think of, we discussed earlier, uh, before we started recording the mentality of like when to kind of fully integrate Mm. (laughs) because while it was technically a public school I had a lot of peers including a close friend who when we were going into the sixth grade their parents wanted to pull them out and put them in like mainstream public school instead of the charter because they wanted them to like have the experience or like be ready for high school it I I thought of that I mean it's quite a different situation between a full special needs school and you know the other public school that Naoki was experiencing but that it's a nuanced discussion and it's different for mm-hmm. every kid and every family to make the decision of like which school when do we need to be <laughs> you know broken out of our bubble how long is the mm-hmm. bubble like actually more helpful than restrictive yeah. yeah 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 i mean yeah i was homeschooled for 4 years my brother and i i don't fully know like why I know my mom made the decision for my brother and she was like I'm not driving one of you to school (laughs) so she homeschooled both of us and I was only in second grade when we started so I didn't really know any better and now looking back on it I'm like oh yeah it's because we were quite autistic um (laughs) and probably needed like the social aspect of school was very hard for both of us yeah I think my favorite friend in first grade was this boy who would just play tetherball with me and wouldn't talk to me. That was my favorite one. <laughs> and um, so, like, I know recess was a challenge. Um, we were both sort of intellectually ahead, but, like, in terms of the organization of a classroom and, like, trying to, you know, executive function stuff, we were behind. So, like, I can see now, like, there were a lot of reasons why homeschooling was a very, very good idea for us. It also helps my mom's, like, an actual school teacher, so she did an amazing job with it. My brother and I got to the point where my mom would just hand us a bunch of books and a couple worksheets and then be like, go. And we would be done in like four hours and then we would just read all day. (laughs) That was like, that was my education. And it worked perfectly for autistic kids who just like, we could follow whatever our special interest was. My brother was like super into history and he just read every single history book ever. You know, my mom had like a really specialized 
writing and literature program for me because I seemed, because I loved reading and she figured out pretty early on that I was a decent writer when I was in like third grade. And so she like tailored that for us. And so it was like, it was perfect. But on the social side, it was interesting because there were a lot of kids who were like homeschooled for their whole lives and then would try to go to college and you're just like, yikes, you know, like they just didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't, (laughs) they didn't really know how to talk to people who weren't adults. And so we made a pretty deliberate choice of like, before going to high school, we like both went to middle school and I desperately needed it because I had forgotten what it was like to have to like coordinate your learning around 30 other people. Even through high school, I never quite got used to, like, you have to do what the teacher says you're doing at all times, because I would just pull out homework. If I got bored in class, I just pulled out homework from another class and started doing it and ignored the teacher. (laughs) Because I was like, this is a waste of my time. Why am I here? Like, you know, I don't need this particular thing. So I'm going to customize it to my own, like, because that I never quite got used to it, but I, on a social level, I desperately needed it. And middle school is where some, I made some of my lifelong friends and provided me friends to have in high school as well. So I feel like I really needed both. Mm -hmm. I really needed both. What it boils down to is like everyone has, you know, I like the public school system is just so one size fits all. And there isn't really anyone who that works for mm-hmm. in the end. Yeah. We need some things where we're like integrated with everyone. And then we need some things that are more specialized. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's built as like one size fits all and it's one size fits few. <laughs> yeah. 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 That leads to the broader world as a whole. And like Naoki is one of the few who like... He has an incredibly successful, by, like, neurotypical standards, career in the arts (laughs) or, you know, literary arts as a nonverbal autistic person. Like, that is incredibly rare. You know, you could probably count them on, like, one or two hands in the world. He really emphasizes, like, how important it was for him to be able to follow his as cliche as it sounds, be able to follow his dreams. You know what I mean? And to try and imagine something bigger for himself. And like the first book even, and when someone came and asked him if they could publish it in English and just like how much that expanded his understanding of what he was capable of. And he's Mm -hmm. like, so few autistic people get this validation that like, What you have to say is good. You have something incredibly valuable to contribute to humanity and we want to hear it and we're going to pay you to do it, which is like sometimes people, a lot of people want to hear it, but they don't want to pay you to do it. I really love that he touched on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The freedom to like choose a path in life and to Mm -hmm. have the ability to imagine something else. Yes. Um, and that people would, I think, it's not just saying that, oh, yeah, you can imagine whatever you want, Naoki, or, like, we support you, but, like, actually asking the questions and operating under the assumption that there is more to life mm-hmm. for 
Naoki than, you know, this path that other disabled people have been on that he is expected to follow and not question and be Mm -hmm. like, this is the only way. Yeah, I think it's really, it was good to be reminded to challenge your assumptions. Like, what are the assumptions you're bringing into the conversation? If you would ask someone who's neurotypical, like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, mm-hmm. But you wouldn't ask a child who's autistic. Mm-hmm. Like, they pick up on that stuff. Yeah. Naoki's, like, straight up was like, why don't you ask me? Yeah. <laughs> I have thoughts, too. I I want to imagine a future. Yeah. It took me a while to get to a place where I was excited about tomorrow. But if I wasn't allowed to imagine a future or encouraged to, I may not have been here. I really liked... He, he talks about um, how, like, everyone needs to be needed for something. Mm-hmm. In order to feel like you have value. Because, like, it makes complete sense, right? Like, uh, human beings as social mammals, like, we derive our value in society by being needed by the collective in some way. Even if it's just a couple people. Like, feeling like we can contribute to someone else's life is where a lot of us derive our sense of self-worth. And even if we feel very confident and content in who we are as ourselves, like, in order to have something to drive you forward to continue moving, um, you really need, like, a, oh, my voice matters or my individual actions matter to this person's life or, like, whatever. And it can be really hard for people who need, who feel like they need more than they give. And where the emphasis in their dynamics with other people is just on receiving help. And it can feel like you start to feel like you're just draining resources from people you love. There needs to be some emphasis on, like, you also have something to contribute. And let me help you imagine what that could look like. Because we do need all types of people. And he talks about that a lot of like, when you get the, when you get different perspectives, when you get particularly perspectives of people who communicate in a very, very different way, you learn so much about empathy, about connection, about like, it makes you question like, why did we build the world this way? And does it have to be this way? And can we build something else? Because, like, we all benefit when we allow all people to be people. (laughs) Because, you know, the complexity of someone else's humanity leaves room for the complexity of yours. And so I think he does an excellent job of making that point. Like, everyone has value to contribute, and we need to make sure that we are communicating that to everybody. Mm -hmm. So that they can have ambition and get excited about getting up tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, There was one passage that was, again, like painted on a wall, inspirational, like insight, and just like beautifully worded too. Hmm. Make your life shine with the purity of a flower and with the shimmering of the stars. Around you are people who are proud of you and wish you well. And you future our days when you can look forward to your tomorrows. Hmm. And I think he's writing specifically to other autistic people in that moment who like feel like they can't they 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 can't look forward to tomorrow mm-hmm. and i appreciate that he affirms that like maybe not today but you can look forward to a future where you do look forward to to your tomorrows mm-hmm. another one that i loved 
Uh, it's in this interview section. So the question is, when life gets unbearable, what should I do? And he says, please don't assume there's an easy exit. Be still, be calm, and spend today just living like you did yesterday. What brought you here isn't your fault. We human beings have to live each day to its fullest and do our best in whatever environment we find ourselves in. There's no need to feel any shame just because your fullest and best look different from those of others. Yes. Ah! Oh, I just love him so much. He has found within himself and his own voice and his own path, like, what makes his life worth living. And he just, he has a very kind of no-nonsense, mature, nuanced outlook on the world. And, like, everyone can benefit from his thoughts. You know what I mean? It's when we provide accommodations for and nourish and support the people with the most difficulty, you know, the people who are most marginalized, then, like, everyone is nourished and everyone is, like, given support. Something a lot of disabled people complained about during the pandemic is that, like, you know, oh, we've all been asking to be able to work from home for mm -hmm. friggin' years, and now, in order to keep the economy running, you need everyone to be able to work from home, and so suddenly all these brand new technologies pop up out of nowhere in, like, a month, and you're just like, what the hell, guys? Like, we've, we've been asking for this for so long, and now, oh, because able-bodied people need it, well, now here it is. And now everyone's like, oh, I'm either never going back to the office again or, like, I don't know any business that's going to be 100% in office. Like, there's going to be some kind of hybrid system or, like, uh, unlimited days off or, mm -hmm. you know, unlimited sick days, whatever. Mental health days and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, <laughs> now suddenly everyone's seeing the benefit of it when you, oh, couldn't afford it beforehand. Right. And it's like, well... Yeah, of course it helps you because the world that we have created is way too stimulating and way too overwhelming and, like, it's not healthy for anyone. It's just it hurts certain people more. So, like, why don't we support those people who it hurts the most and then we'll all feel some relief and yeah. some respite. Yeah. So... That's my little rant. Yeah. <laughs> no, it makes me think I'm currently reading Invisible Women, um, yes. which we will be discussing on the podcast Oh, later. yes, we will. But one anecdote from that was at, I believe the example was Google, one of the C-suite happened to be a woman, and she, when she was pregnant, realized how difficult <laughs> it was to navigate, because they have a huge campus big parking garages and she finally she comes in and she's like we need prioritized parking for pregnant women because we need like it's so far to walk mm -hmm. and my feet are swollen and I am carrying a child and mm -hmm. I'm done and it took someone in power and in leadership for that happened. she was not the first pregnant person to work at Google but when it you know finally touches that top tier whether it's able-bodied or position of power or both um that people like finally pay attention and be like, oh, I guess I never thought of that. That is very mm -hmm. poorly designed. <laughs> and yeah, if we can 
address the needs and bring people to the table to have those conversations sooner in the planning phases, not only does it save time and money from the get-go, it also supports the whole breadth of mm-hmm. people that are impacted, not just... Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to wait until a couple of people get loud about it, but it's definitely going to impact more than just the people that are speaking up. Yeah. It's like that idea, the thing that teachers always say, where it's like, please always ask your question, because if you have that question, everyone probably has, a lot yes. of people probably have that question, but they're too scared to ask. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's how a lot of things are in humanity, is we're just, a, there's a lot of people just putting up with it, and there's a couple people who can't put up with it, they like physically can't, and so they're the ones that make a fuss, but like, a lot of people's lives would be better if you just changed it. Yeah. And that is a, I want to give credit where credit is due. That is a principle from womanism. Mm-hmm. Victoria was trying for a very long time to attribute that concept to someone yeah. specific. So if you know specifically who kind of attributed, <laughs> like where to attribute the, I don't know if there's, if it even came from one specific person or if it's yeah. more of a collective tenant of womanism as far as like when we free the oppressed, we all can be free. Yeah. There's an extended tree metaphor about the roots and the branches. Is it Alice Walker? Is it someone else? Please let us know. (laughs) We want to be able to, like, attribute that quote, and then we'll link it in the show notes if you send it to us. So, is that what we learned? Yeah. When we treat autistic people as people first, it is extremely beneficial Mm -hmm. and necessary for autistic people, and helps us create a society that is more welcoming, inclusive, comfortable, and livable <laughs> Yeah, for everyone else, too. Yeah. And, okay, so any extra shout-outs or shutdowns? I mean, there is nothing bad in this book. My only shutdown is if you Google reviews on this book and you get some of the really unnecessary and shitty reviews that are like, well, how could an autistic person oh, have these deep thoughts? Just ignore them. Yeah. Or report them if you want to do that um it's unhelpful and unnecessary and also if you're on wikipedia go rewrite this one really well i think it's the reason i jumped it's phrased as the book is attributed to instead of like written by and it's like why especially considering wikipedia standards for like non-bias writing there's a lot of bias i think in that Mm -hmm. gives a lot of weight to the to the few naysayers. Yeah, to the few articles that are like, hmm, I don't believe that autistic people can really have this depth of thought and emotion. And it's like, did you read it? Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what he's saying. Is yeah. That you think I don't have depth of emotion, and yet I do. And yet here I am. Um, so that's my only shutdown. But my uh, shout out is a wonderful quote. My last favorite quote. Even when you've made a blunder, I don't want you to beat yourself up about it. I think if we can acknowledge all the variations of who we are, we can also be at peace with who we were in the past. Ah. So when you're laying in bed and all those negative thoughts <laughs> of like, why did I say that thing 10 years ago? Come back. Uh-huh. Um, just remember. Naoki believes in you. Naoki believes in you. Yeah. I've got a couple quotes about um, empathy and like the issue of like neurotypical people and autistic people not understanding each other. Um, they're short. 
So one of them says, uh, in my view, however, people with neurotypical brains aren't so fantastic at getting to grips with our emotions either. Empathy goes both ways. So he says, uh, sometimes I wonder, am I wholly to blame if I can't handle this? Our world would improve if the neurotypical majority could try to empathize a little better and a little more often with people like me who, quote unquote, lack endurance. Ask yourselves why this is hard for us or why we're doing a particular thing. Or just, like, pay attention. Mm-hmm. And don't, you know, use your own... Don't just assume something about what an autistic person's feeling or what you want them to feel. Um, and then this one's my favorite. Uh, the neurotypical public needs to know that the failure of people with autism, autism to communicate doesn't stem from inner self-imprisonment. It stems from a failure of others to see that we are open and receptive. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Proud of my boy. Good job, Naoki. We look forward to your next book. Yeah. And maybe we'll <laughs> learn Japanese someday and we can maybe read your other writings. We can read the other ones. Yeah. yeah. Okay, recommendations. Mm-hmm. For people who enjoyed this book and what they learned from it, what would you recommend they check out next? Uh, I mentioned the I Am Greta documentary, which I'm sure I've recommended before. It's wonderful. I cried a lot. It's on Hulu. <laughs> uh, and then another film, a documentary that I watched very recently, um, that's actually nominated for an Oscar. It's called Crip Camp. Not the best name for it, honestly. But that's what it's called. And it's about... Like Crip? C-R-I-P? C-R-I-P. Okay. Yeah. It always sounds like crib. Oh, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Um, Possibly meaning cripple? I don't know. It feels not like a great... Like, not a good representation of what's in the film. Mm. Because what it's about is this hippie summer camp for uh, disabled kids in, like, the 60s and 70s. Um, and it was, like, a really affirming space where even a lot of the counselors were, like, disabled themselves, and a lot of the kids who went to this camp ended up becoming, like, leaders in the disability rights movement, and Mm -hmm. so they, like, staged a sit-in to try and, where they were trying to force them to follow through on promises they'd made about federal buildings having like ramps and like being accessible and stuff like that and were then essential in the passing of the ADA as well. So it's really cool because it like both these documentaries that I'm recommending are great examples of what disabled people are capable of when they are in affirming environments that like reflect their humanity and their value and listen to what they have to say. And then, if you're interested in reading more about autism, you can join our membership, the Tism Tier, um, where I send, or I, on the Buy Me a Coffee page, I post um, an article every week about things I'm learning about autism, about my own experiences, sort of a combination of the two. So it's a great place to learn more. You can support us for $5 a month. Shameless plug. I mean, it's, yeah, on topic. Yeah, it is. Um, My recommendations, we mentioned it already. I feel like we mention it every time we discuss books 
by autistic authors or about autism, but Neurotrized by yes. Steve Silberman is a really um, detailed like introduction to the history of autism. And I feel like it really does a good job at like laying the groundwork to understand where it comes from, the stigma around it, and the different kind of camps um, in present day mm-hmm. of how we speak about and address and think about autism. I would recommend the artist and poet Morgan Harper Nichols on Instagram. She has recently been sharing more about her experience being diagnosed with autism as an adult. Um, so fantastic poetry and art. I've been a, a longtime fan and follower of her, and it's been really great. And I know um, encouraging to many others uh, who are autistic to hear her experiences and yeah, support her as she learns more about herself. Okay, what are you currently obsessed with? What's bringing you joy? There's an Australian musician called DPR Ian. I don't know what that stands for. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. He's got an album. It's an acronym, and I also don't know what that stands for. It's like M-I-T-O or something. This is really so cryptic. Yeah, I know it stands for something. It's like mental breakdown something or other. It's not like a happy album, but that's really good. <laughs> also, there's this, I, I recently discovered a Korean alt-rock band called Lucy that I'm really, really enjoying because their whole vibe is just like springtime jams. They have a violinist and so their their sound is like very bright. So yeah, as you're bringing in the new seasons, I would recommend that one. Okay, I just had to pull up one of my recommendations. Mm-hmm. My brother sent me a song by the band Half Alive, and I pulled up the rest of their album, and they have a song called Rest featuring Sam Henshaw, and I was like, I like Sam Henshaw, I might like this song. And then I'm pretty sure this song is just very specifically written to me, as you oh know, my God. so much music is. Of course. Just right to my heart. <laughs> and it's all about, like, living busy, or I'll just quote it, but living busy isn't giving you your worth, slowing down is fighting back, the time you take is given back, shifting gears is saving gas. And so it's like all about like the hustle and the grind Mm. is never worth it. Mm -hmm. And finding rest for yourself, taking a minute to breathe and receive clarity is like a secret that he's starting to believe in. So I just play it on repeat as I like start this new phase of my life where I'm working freelance and, and working more to manage my own stress and anxiety by like only committing (laughs) the hours of my day that I actually have to work and and making time for myself and for my relationships. So my other recommendation, I mentioned it before, Recipe Club is a great podcast, but they recently had an episode where they made a dish by Samin Nosrat, who's like a famous uh, American cook from, she has Iranian, I think her parents are from Iran. I don't remember if she was born there or not. Um, and so she has some Persian dishes and I was like, wait a second, I've made Persian food once before and I absolutely loved it. I definitely should spend the next entire week only cooking Persian food and learning more. (laughs) And it's been great. So I made Samin Nazarat's recipe for poloba tadig, which is, uh, a rice dish with like crispy bread, Mm -hmm. um, on the bottom. It's like beautiful, fluffy, saffron flavored. And then um, My Persian Kitchen is a, a recipe blog um, that I found a recipe for uh, chicken mushroom stew that was delicious. I ate the last of it for lunch before we recorded this podcast. And I'm like, when can I make this again? So yeah, I'm just going to be cooking Persian food all weekend and 
I hope you do too. That's my recommendation. Sweet. Whatever's bringing you joy, man. Yeah. That's what we're all about. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Book Club with Julia and Victoria. Chime in with your own thoughts and recommendations on Instagram at bookclubwithjv or through the contact form on our website, www.bookclubwithjv.com. Our website is also where you can find show notes for this episode, which include links to any of the recommendations we gave or other tidbits we mentioned. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're currently listening, and leave us a five-star review on Apple while you're there. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Bruick, along with Julia Claus. Our music is composed by Greg Burick. Our logo was designed by Gabby Febland. And Rebecca Gesney is our project manager. We'll catch you all on our next episode. Happy reading!